Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. What is the thing that you're most uh, proud of in your career? Oh, Evan Almighty, of course. <laughs> That's, That's a good movie. That's a good movie. Fuck you, fatty. Steve, I've not, I don't, just lead me right into that and smack me across the face. It's a great movie. Okay. Regardless of all that, they go, like it lost a lot of money and all that stuff. No one saw it and the budget was way over and no one was interested in seeing it. It's a great movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, in case you couldn't recognize their voices, that was Zach Galifianakis interviewing Steve Carell on Between Two Ferns a little moment where they talk about the movie that we're going to talk about on this week's episode of What Went Wrong, the least successful podcast ever made about unsuccessful movies. We don't know that yet. Evan Almighty. So let's dive in. For those of you that don't know, Evan Almighty tells the story of Evan Baxter, who was in the original Bruce Almighty with mm -hmm. Jim Carrey from 2003. He's a news reporter who has now become a congressman fresh off of a campaign to change the world. Yeah, the most vague campaign of all time. The slogan is literally just change the world. It makes Make America Great Again very specific in comparison. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, upon arriving in Washington, he is approached by Morgan Freeman as God to build an ark for a coming flood mm -hmm. and hijinks ensue. Oh, do they ever. This movie was released in 2007, uh, and at the time, it was the highest budgeted comedy of all time. Made for a reported $170 million, although many believe the budget went in excess of $200 million. Oh, my God. And unfortunately, it didn't do that well at the box office. In fact, uh, it only grossed $170 million worldwide, on its $200 million budget. And then if you add in like another $50 million for marketing costs. Which they did a lot of. Universal lost in upwards of over $100 million oh on God. this movie. Uh, so it's understandable why Steve Carell spoke about it in the way that he did. Uh, so a little bit of background on this film. First of all, 
It's got an incredible cast. Mm-hmm. Lizzie, who are some of the favorites that you noticed? Obviously, Steve Carell, who I adore. He's great. Uh, there's Ed Helms, John Goodman, Wanda Sykes. There's a very young Jonah Hill playing a prototype for many of his other roles, I would say. Yep. I, I can't remember I his remember name. Dean Norris, who plays Hank in Breaking yes. Bad, shows up as yes. Hank from Breaking Bad yes. <laughs> as a police officer. At the very end, the end, he's like an incredulous You gotta move officer. this arc now! <laughs> yeah. Ten seconds later, everybody get on the arc! <laughs> yeah, exactly. He has a strong arc to the arc <laughs> At the end of the film, he's great. Um, so he's got an incredible cast. It does oh, not. Uh, Laura, what's her face? Uh, from? Lauren Graham. Yeah. Uh, oh, Morgan Freeman. As Morgan God. Freeman obviously Sorry. is God. Um, it was coming off of Bruce Almighty, which was incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with a price tag of over two hundred and fifty million dollars, this was going to need to make at least five hundred million dollars worldwide to break even. As we said, it made one hundred and seventy-three million dollars. It's a fascinating misfire at multiple levels, and I think it exposed a rapidly changing industry and signaled the end of an era for a specific type of comedy that we had grown to love from the 90s. So let's go back to how this movie got started. Uh, And it really started with Bruce Almighty, which I don't think we remember just how crazy a hit Bruce Almighty was. No, I do. And just how biggest star jim carrey was so jim carrey at in the mid-2000s is up there with tom cruise and will smith oh yeah he is one of basically three people who are bulletproof Mm -hmm. at the box office his only unsuccessful film up until this point he kind of had two one was man on the moon which is good it's good critically acclaimed he got a lot of press for his uh both antics behind the scenes and his performance right and the other was um the majestic the Frank Darabont yeah. film about a blacklisted writer in a small town, uh, a little bit treacly, didn't do horribly, but also didn't do not great. Bad. Yeah. Not a bad movie. Uh, he, it's. We should just go back and do a brief look at just how huge Jim Carrey was. Nineteen ninety four, Jim Carrey had three movies come out in that year. Is that Dumb and Dumber? Dumb and Dumber. Uh, Ace Ventura. Ace Ventura. And okay, hold on. Dumb and Dumber. Ace Ventura. It's not a Batman, is it? Nope. Uh, okay, He's the know. lead, The Mask. The lead. Oh, wow. So in one year, 1994, he has Dumb and Dumber, Ace Ventura, and The Mask. Production budget for those films combined was $55 million. Combined, they made $705 million Whoa. at the box office. So his first three lead roles brought in almost a billion dollars at the box office wow. on $50 million in budget. So over the next decade, he becomes the biggest comedy actor in the world, yeah. which culminates in Bruce Almighty. Mm-hmm. Bruce Almighty was released in 2003. The director's Tom Shadiak, who does Evan Almighty. Bruce Almighty is released on Memorial Day weekend of 2003. It's expected to be a hit, but maybe a modest one. Instead, it opens at $86 million, making it the top Memorial Day weekend opening in, of any film in history. It topped... The Matrix Reloaded, which was only in its second weekend at the time. Uh, In the end, it made $500 million worldwide on a budget of $81 million. It is a massive, massive success. I would also say, like, the fact that Jennifer Aniston is the co-star and that didn't hurt either. Oh, absolutely. That one had a bit more star power behind it. Totally. Uh, So Bruce Almighty does great. And, of course, everybody's thinking sequel. So meanwhile, somewhere in Hollywood that April, there's a spec script that's being shopped around. And a spec script just means speculative script. Some writers wrote something, and now it's being shopped around to see if there's a buyer. It's titled The Passion of the Ark. 
And it's written by two unknown writers, Bobby Florsheim and Josh Stolberg. Apologies if I pronounce your names incorrectly. And it becomes the subject of a seven-studio bidding war. And the reason is, with the success of Passion of the Christ Uh. by known pacifist Mel Gibson, which had made $600 million, largely off of what was previously believed to be an untappable audience of Christian Mm -hmm. moviegoers. Which we now know certainly not an untappable audience. Uh, All of a sudden, studios are a little more interested in the religious fair that they've been afraid of since The Last Temptation of the Christ in 1988 with Martin Scorsese. Which is, by the way, a very good movie. So the script sells for guess how much? This is a spec script written by two unproduced writers. Okay, spec script. The script sells for $40 million. So you're like, off, overestimate? You're off by an order. It's just the script. Uh, it's not like a budget. Chris, I don't know how budgets work. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, <laughs> it, I don't understand the money. It sells for $2.5 million, mm-hmm. which is, <laughs> we'll edit out your original guess. No, please leave it in. <laughs> they... they uh, decide that the Christian market, which previously was believed to be unreachable Only by mainstream, by Kirk Cameron and the well, true. There series. was there was there were the movies that Hollywood made, and then there were the movies that right. like the Christian community made for right. themselves. Uh, they decide all of a sudden maybe there's a way to make inroads with this community. Mm-hmm. So the script sells for a record two and a half million dollars, which is the highest amount that any two previously unpublished writers had gotten for a spec script. Yeah, that's before. crazy. Uh, Universal purchases it, and they immediately make a deal with Sony. They're going to co-produce it. Uh Uh-oh, that never goes well. Well, we'll get there. And they're going to have Steve Odekirk, not Bob (laughs) Odenkirk, Steve (laughs) Odekirk, who uh, made... Do you remember those weird thumb movies? No. Okay, well, if you are listening to this podcast, look up Steve Odekirk's thumb parodies, like Thumb Wars and... He would make movies. Oh, like Star Wars, but with thumbs? Correct. I do remember this. He made all of those. He also made Kung Pao Enter the Fury, which was him playing a kung fu master. It's really funny, probably really offensive now. <laughs> um, he is going to rewrite it as a sequel to Bruce Almighty. Eventually, the studio decides, that they, you know what? We don't actually like this original script at all, so they just throw it in the trash. Okay, out of curiosity, though, knowing what it became, what was the original script? The because- original script was God approaches an everyday guy okay. and says, you need to build an ark. I think okay. it was more of a satire of that story set in contemporary time not so much a the santa claus meets gotcha you know mr smith goes to watch that we eventually get with this one i think it was less broad basically than what we ended up with that's interesting because you can you can kind of tell that this got mishmashed and had band-aids put on it because basically what happens at the top of this movie is you get a really fast catch-up of how Steve Carell all of a sudden became a congressman, as we mentioned earlier, that he's going to change the world. That's his entire plan. His family's like, we're moving. We're here. Look at our mansion. We're rich now. We're Congress people. And then... I don't think they know how much Congress people get <laughs> yeah, paid. Yeah, that was my other question. Like, they we're only in... going to have rich friends now. And I was like, doesn't the government pay you nothing? <laughs> they live in a gigantic mansion. He's a new Which congressman. Which we're going to get to that mansion as well. Anyway, it's like... 
I want to. I'm going to be a congressman. Yeah. I want to be a good congressman. And no then his thing. wife is like, uh, "I wish you were a congressman that spent more time with me. I hope this is worth it." And then he's like, he says a prayer, and his prayer is, "I want to change the world." That's the catalyst for the whole thing. Yes. I actually had less of a problem with it than you did. It made me I was mad. Like, I was like, I'm tracking it. Like, this makes no, sense to me. It does uh, not make sense. But, okay, so the movie's, uh, clearly it's been adapted from a yes. different piece of material. That's the first thing to know. They bought one script, mm-hmm. they adapted for something else. That's done all the time. Yeah, 10 so, Cloverfield Lane was an example correct. of a good version of that. Exactly. Or if you watch Bruce Willis's Tears of the Sun, originally... I won't. That was supposed to be a Die Hard script. And then if you watch Die Hard 4, that was not a Die Hard script. So they do this constantly. So they buy this piece of property so nobody else can make it. Steve Oderkirk decides he doesn't actually like any of the original script. So they set the $2.5 million on fire. Uh, Oderkirk's the only credited writer. And so, so far, we have not filmed a single frame yet. And we are over $2.5 million in the hole. Uh, So the movie now needs a director. And Mm -hmm. it needs a star. They get Tom Shadiak to come back. He directed Evan Al- uh, Bruce Almighty. And if you don't know Tom Shadiak, you know his movies. He did Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, The Nutty Professor, Liar Liar, Patch Adams, oh. Bruce Almighty, and Kevin Costner's Dragonfly, the early 2000s supernatural drama that you didn't see, <laughs> but yeah. it's it's okay. okay. It's really weird. Um, it's a little spiritual. It's a little supernatural. It's a lot of Kevin Costner, and not a lot of people saw it. Mm-hmm. That was his kind of only flop. He was comedy gold mm-hmm. in the '90s. Uh, up until Bruce Evan Almighty, his movies had made over two billion dollars at the box office. So Tom Shadiak is very successful. And he'd worked with Jim Carrey on three of his most successful films. Right. Ace Ventura, Liar Liar, Bruce Almighty. Uh, Tom Shediak is a very talented guy. He was the youngest joke writer for Bob Hope that he, was, wow. he had ever hired. He was 24. And Tom Shediak hired Judd Apatow to be one of his joke writers on his early movies. So Judd Apatow wrote on a lot of those movies in the 90s. And we'll get to this as we kind of progress here. Okay. The passing of the torch. So Tom wow. Shediak's in. He goes to Jim Carrey, and Jim Carrey's like, I'm good. Uh, Jim Carrey had a no sequels rule that he was following at this point. He had done the Ace Ventura When Nature Calls, but he turned down the sequel to The Mask. Mm -hmm. Jamie Kennedy ended up dying in that fire. Um, (laughs) And then uh, he turned down Dumb and Dumber 2, Dumb and Dumberer. Eventually he did it. But Eventually yes. he did the, the, the trilogy concluder. But yeah. um, he turned down that one. Uh, Eric Christian Olsen died on that grenade, yeah. I think. Uh, and then he passed on Evan Almighty. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just wasn't interested in rehashing characters. And I think he had already Not started. Not a bad move. No, super smart those, move. Yeah. yeah. He, all the three of those movies tanked. Yeah. Uh, so... Tom Shadiak and the producers are getting together and they're trying to figure out who's going to star in this movie. And the guy that was kind of the unexpected scene stealer from Bruce Almighty was Steve Carell. Was Steve Carell, who nobody really knew at the time, but right. he had these great scenes as well. Not they, nobody. He was knew. on the He'd Daily been Show. On the, been on The Office. Uh, not when Bruce Almighty came out. Really? The Office started in two thousand five. Oh. Yeah. So Steve Carell was largely unknown. So they filmed Evan Almighty before they the office season two went back on the air oh so he had been a correspondent in the daily show 
and he got the office after mm-hmm. um, Bruce Almighty, uh, along with Anchorman, the um, right. Brick, Brick Tamlin role. Uh, but he had these great scenes where he had to do physical comedy that matched literally Jim Carrey's performance as he like made him screw up on air. And he mm-hmm. did a great job. And yeah. it's like, great, we've got our new Elastic Man that can be the lead of this film. And then they don't have him do any of that in Evan Almighty. We'll get to that. Uh, not only that, he had just starred in an incredibly successful Judd Apatow movie. Oh, 40-Year-Old Virgin. The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Which is great. Came out in 2005. And wow. I believe signaled a shift in the comedy tastes of the industry. Yeah. 2005, it's made for $26 million, and it ends up grossing $177 million. So it mm-hmm. actually made $40 million more than Evan Almighty at one-tenth of the price. And Judd Apatow was previously Shady X, kind of protege. Lizzie, let me ask you something. You've got a moderately successful podcast that requires you to watch a boatload of movies, right? Yep. Okay, so how do you find time to cook healthy, affordable meals? I don't. I've been eating delicious, ready-to-eat meals from Factor. They're chef-crafted, dietitian approved and delivered right to my door. Okay, but do they have snacks and smoothies, the only two things that my daughter currently eats? Uh, they sure do. There are over 35 different options every week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, veggie, and vegan for you and your vegan child. And the best part is, when you sign up, you save money because Factor is less expensive than takeout. The napkin math checks out. I actually did it. Factor gets you a two-minute, restaurant-quality meal on the table with no prep and no mess. Until my daughter throws it on my face. It's flexible for any schedule. Choose between 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule anytime. So head to factormeals.com slash www50 and use code www50 to get 50% off. www50 at factormeals.com slash www50 to get 50% off. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. So the perception is optimistic, Mm -hmm. but I would argue that this is the first thing that really really went wrong with the movie. Uh, Steve Carell is immensely talented, immensely likable, and now certainly a huge star, but people don't know him internationally in the way that they know Jim Carrey right at this point in time Jim Carrey had been in 20 movies by the time he did Bruce Almighty yeah Steve Carell was just getting started also as you mentioned they don't use him in the same way that they used Jim Carrey no they don't use him in the same way that they use him in Bruce Almighty correct so uh they start budgeting the movie and it is not budgeted as a comedy it's instead budgeted as a biblical epic so the initial budget is $140 million, That's which, insane. Uh, to give you a good point of reference, this is what, like, basically Wonder Woman cost. Yeah, Titanic was like $200 million. Exactly. Well, yeah. Reported. And that was insane. Correct. So uh, by 2006, the LA Times is reporting that the movie is, quote, taking on water, which is really clever by them. Uh 
the studio had pushed for a December release because they wanted to release it over Christmas to hit the Christian community right where it counts. Right. Christmas equals Noah's Ark. I get it. Yep. That's when all biblical events happen yep. <laughs> is Christmas. Jesus um, and Noah. So the by aiming for a December release date, that cut the movie's prep time by over 50%. So instead of having six months prep, they had just over two months prep. Ooh. So the shoot is improperly scheduled as a result. Had they waited a month, they would have avoided a lot of bad weather, but instead they got hit by like a month of torrential rain. Yeah, because when is the shooting? In Virginia in the fall. Oh, basically. yeah. It's a mess. Yeah, exactly. I grew up in Richmond. It's a yeah. hot mess. It's pretty bad. But at this point, they are, quote, pot committed. They've invested an incredible amount of money into right. this movie. They have an enormous cast. They have John Goodman, Academy mm. Award nominee, Steve Carell future Emmy, multi-time, multi-time Emmy, Emmy winner, Lauren Graham, Lizzie doesn't like her. Uh, She's fine. Another number of other people. Um, but the problem is that simultaneous to this, the industry is just changing. So Judd Apatow is the new hotshot young comedy director of Hollywood. The Fairley brothers, Tom Shadiak, Peter Siegel, these guys all of a sudden are kind of out. The movies that were incredibly popular, the broad comedies of the 90s and early 2000s, all of a sudden aren't the surefire hits that they were supposed to be previously. So even Jim Carrey is no longer bulletproof. In May of 2006, 20th Century Fox pulls the plug on a film that he was supposed to star in, Used Guys, which was a $115 million Jim Carrey comedy due to its price tag. Hmm. So it's not in good shape. Uh, And then the question really becomes, Lizzie... Why do you think this movie, like, why is this movie so expensive? I think it's got to be the animals. Right? Yeah. There's so many animals. Don't shoot with animals. Don't shoot with kids. Yeah. There's a couple kids. They're not super young, but like the animals, they, they, first of all, the end of this movie ends up being that a flood comes not across the planet, but just in their little neighborhood and it's all related to john goodman's like bad bill it's the most insane movie movie logic the third act of the film concludes not with a storm of biblical proportions but uh upscale housing development being threatened by a local watering hole which makes my question why did god tell the zebras to show up they didn't need to be there we don't need to get into that there's no zebras in virginia (laughs) at the zoos there are Uh, (laughs) they were fine (laughs) they were fine they put them in harm's way yeah the big the big issue became not only shooting with the animals but that the animals couldn't shoot with each other yeah because there's lions next to like skunks so i liked the skunks a lot the skunks were great so what looks like one shot in the movie is actually 50 shots stitched together and also correct me if i'm wrong didn't they they had some problems with the like male and female pairing so they had to do a lot of them like male and male and female and female because they were banging each other there's a lot of that (laughs) a lot of dominating banging fighting uh what the dog was uh really into steve carell's crotch (laughs) they put that in the movie they did Uh, but that was real that was like on set happening they didn't have to train him or anything that adds up because it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable (laughs) to watch steve carell doesn't seem to enjoy it it's it's not it's he's not he's 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 i don't i think steve carell had a really hard time in this movie he twisted his ankle really bad he had to go to the hospital birds were the like first scene that they shot there's like 40 birds on him pooping all (laughs) over him i think it was a rough experience and i think that the the big problem was that they were trying to visually make something that was this huge spectacle which i i have to say they did do 
Like, yeah. it is nuts to see that many animals and even mm-hmm. to see the dam break at the end of the movie. It and looks good. It does look pretty good, but the it begs the question, why? So the CGI alone took a year to complete just to do the, the arc spill, uh, the flood spill at the end. So Industrial Light and Magic, our yeah. friends that we've talked about. At Lucasfilm. Yep. Uh, are hired to do the flood. And the reason that this flood is really hard is because no one had done daylight water CGI of that scale. So when you're doing animation, doing things in lower light makes it a lot easier to make it look realistic. Furthermore, you want to restrict the amount of bounce light and ambient light because that's much harder to animate. So like one of the reasons that Jurassic Park looks so great, the 1993 one, it's dark and they use a single source light that's high key mm-hmm. above the Tyrannosaurus Rex that puts it in silhouette most of the time. So as a result, a it looks point. really good. Yeah, it does. It it's holds It's really up. hard to animate things during the day. But when you're shooting a broad comedy, mm-hmm. you never want to shoot things dark. You want it to feel light and up. So what should be not as expensive becomes incredibly expensive and doesn't look in, look as good because of the constraints of the genre. So ILM is hired to do the flood. It takes them a year. They spend three months shooting miniatures by themselves, like just people in a room shooting like bulldozers getting knocked over by water. It takes them like 15 to 20 weeks to render out a single shot. So they're having to do these things staggered on top of each other. It's really just, it's absurd. They have 80 engineers and VFX artists that are working on it. And that's only handling the flood. They also have to CGI a lot of the animals mm-hmm. and composite them in. So the, the studio hires Rhythm and Hughes, which ends up doing Life of Pi. Oh. Immediately afterwards. And it's through the technology that they developed on this Evan Almighty did. that they were able to do Life of Pi. So Rhythm and Hughes comes in and they make 300 CGI animals, all unique, for wide shots and then 15 hero animal pairs, Mm -hmm. 30 animals for like close shots, all animated. They then hired a third company to pick up additional CGI shots that they needed. For example, the fish in the fish tank that follows Steve Carell's head around as he's going. Uh, So they have an incredible amount of CGI that's going into this comedy movie what's infuriating is that like the fish in the fish tank for example not a necessary thing that you needed to sell this movie well these were like those were the gags like that was the whole running the one running they had two running jokes there's the animals follow him and he can't stop growing beards yeah those are the two running jokes so the other incredibly expensive part of this movie was that they decided not to rely entirely on cgi and instead, they decided to build an actual ark at biblical proportions. Oh, my God. So in Virginia. What, 15 cubits high or whatever? At the Shenandoah, base of the Shenandoah Valley, mm-hmm. they built an ark that was 450 feet long. Oh, my God. 80 feet wide and 51 feet high. Oh, my God. They built it for real. They had to build a foundation and like a skeleton out of steel. And then they had to build the ark in conjunction with shooting it so they could show the progress being made as they were going through this process. Great. The problem was that they would have to film the actors during the day, as I mentioned, and then work the crew overnight. But even so, the construction crew couldn't keep up. So they would have to go shoot other scenes for like a week at a time and like leave them to build and then rush back (sighs) to film more. But not only that... They needed some pretty specific looks and geography. So if you remember that really beautiful house that they moved into, they built that too. 
And they built the four houses that were around it as well. That makes sense because that house is like, it's in the middle of nowhere and there's no housing development that mm-hmm. looks like that where it's just like flat dead grass and then a mansion yep. in the middle of it. Yep. It was tough. So yeah. they end up shooting in Virginia for a lot of the production. And the yeah. great thing is that Virginia gets a lot of production money from it as a result. So the Virginia government estimated that they uh, generated between 25 and $30 million great. in it go, revenue Virginia? for... Um, I don't know Virginia well enough to make a joke about that. Um, Production actually did a really good job, too, with not leaving a footprint behind. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, The movie, they wrap up shooting in Virginia, and they've traveled back to Los Angeles, where they shot most of everything that has to do with the Capitol and Congress and all of the green screen and blue screen stuff. Mm -hmm. They have multiple animal trainers. They're shooting... Different plates for every animal multiple times. So the shots where it looks like there's 50 animals on screen, that's just 50 shots that they're compositing in over and over and over again. Uh, In late May during production, so they're like wrapping up post and they're aiming for a June release, Tom Shediak's starting to get a little nervous. Yeah. Because the production budget overruns have cut into the marketing budget for the movie. So Tom Shadiak starts complaining to producers, I'm not seeing any ads and I don't know why. I'm not getting any answers. People are giving me it's information that isn't true. You giraffes, Tom. I'm only hearing about all the other summer movies and nothing about mine. He also fired his marketing team that had handled all of his previous films because he thought they were mishandling the marketing. And I think you can start to tell, even in his interviews with reporters, that he's feeling nervous. And I have a mm. quote here from Tom Shadiak uh, doing press with a scrum of reporters. And he's clearly a very chill, sweet, relaxed guy. Okay. And when he talks about the budget, I think you can tell he's a little on edge. This movie has been uh, uh, widely reported as costing $200 million. Really? Wow. That's kind of expensive. Yeah, I spent $200 million on Evan Almighty and was the uh, look uh, that Steve Carell has in this movie influenced by the your own look. <laughs> um, just the hairdressing alone was like $98 million. Um, yeah, I kind of want to be, I like the budget thing like, like kind of makes me smile because, you know, uh, Spider-Man just costs around three hundred. Uh, we're 170 plus, I think, is the official figure, although I don't even know what it was. Um, we're one of the, one of the uh, cheaper summer movies, um, and yet we're a comedy, so it's unique. But we're much more than a comedy. As you know, we're a biblical epic. We had an ark. We had thousands of animals. We had a flood. Um, and if you look at the screen, I could point you specifically to where, where the money goes. You know, CG generation of water, uh, you know, composite shots that are 100 layers thick and deep. Um, and the good news is the ticket prices aren't going up because of this movie. Uh, people will get more for their money. And in this very competitive summer climate, we're glad we could offer a lot for the dollar. So, um, and I'm also glad that a comedy is, is being given this kind of belief by a studio. You know, that a comedy is being taken this seriously. And uh, again, we're a Bible story, too. We're a Bible parable. You know, we're not just, quote, a comedy. It's not two guys on a, you know, on a road trip, you know, uh, behind the wheel of a, of a, of a Pinto, you know. Um, although I, I think I may do that movie. That sounds good. Oh, no. That made me sad. So it's tough. They, there was this real belief that this movie uh, was going to 
break in like a different type of well, comedy. And to be honest, like there were moments in the movie where I understand that feeling because it's very clear that they are trying to make a movie that will appeal to families, a movie that's fun for everybody to watch, and a movie that does have a good message at its core mm-hmm. and, and that is kind of trying to to, you know, send a sort of, like, take care of your family message in a way that we don't necessarily see all that often anymore. Absolutely. It just didn't, it didn't work. And there was a lot of belief in, like, the IP of the movie. So, like, Universal Studios had David Lindy, or Lind, uh, before the movie, said, it's basically a sure thing. It's based on two story sources, Bruce Almighty and the Bible, both of which were incredibly successful. Best sellers. Exactly. Um, so the the movie is really being pushed as not just a comedy. This is a movie that is, they say biblical, but what they're really saying is this is Christian. a Christian film. Yeah, which which does get pushed significantly harder in this than it did in Bruce Almighty. And that's not, that's... One of the things I think I was maybe most surprised by with this one is that, and I haven't watched Bruce Almighty super recently, but I don't remember, I don't remember the message being that strongly, is secular the right word when it's, or is that the opposite? This is not secular. This is not secular. This is religious. There we go. Uh, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember it being that strongly, um religiously message there's a word i just can't find it it's not proselytizing to you all right so (laughs) correct at the end of bruce almighty he does have to learn how to pray but it doesn't have quite the same religious driver at the end of this movie uh and the truth is that this movie is hard to market the passion of the christ was supposed to be a very christian yet realistic quote look at the death of christ right this is a broad comedy mm-hmm. that is the sequel to what the christian community considered to be a raunchy comedy by the way yeah and something that i can see upsetting people Correct. who are so like this that's that's kind of the disconnect for me is like it, if i'm somebody who is perhaps born again or or very scripture oriented i'm not going out to see bruce almighty exactly so the sequel to that regardless of how nice the messaging is is not something i'm going to show up for especially not with your kids no when in the first one a lot of what bruce uses his powers for is making ladies boobs bigger correct and blowing up their skirts on the street like yeah mm-hmm. it's literally pulling the moon closer to so that jennifer aniston will bang him will not be on her period anymore does he not understand like how the tides were i don't know what's happening with it is it's, that what that is it's I, no it's not <laughs> that's a bad joke um <laughs> so it's a really really hard movie to market <laughs> david's jewish this is his least favorite episode of the podcast ever um i'm trying to be nice to christians because my mom's born again my family is mostly it's hard it's hard <laughs> they're silly no it's fine it's good Uh, it has a nice message but what's interesting is there is a church going audience out there the movie's just having a hard time reaching them not only has the marketing budget been cut Mm -hmm. but they are trying to take a very different approach in how they market the movie so it's a very mixed message i think the general thought is people that saw bruce almighty will want to see this movie so we're not going to worry about them so much instead we need to attract even more hardcore church going crowd through the help of Grace Hill Media, 
which is the company that none oh, of you have heard of. No, I have heard of this. But it influences every single movie you watch every single year. So Grace Hill Media is a company that was started by this young man, Jonathan Bach. Yeah. He's not a young man anymore. He cut his teeth working on movies like Bruce Almighty, Elf, Signs. Uh, and these days, every major studio uses this firm. So Bach, is a, he's a deacon at a Presbyterian church, and he runs this company. He got to start as an assistant uh, to the former senior VP of publicity at Warner Brothers. He wanted to be a TV comedy writer, and I think he quickly realized that there was this gulf between Christian audiences and Hollywood, and that cynically you could say there was a way to make money off of that, and 100%. charitably there's a way to say he realized that he thought Christians need to be patrons of the arts again in the way that they were back in the early days of Roman Catholicism in Italy. And so he has a quote, in Italy, you see evidence everywhere that there was a time when the church partnered with the artistic community to create timeless, transcendent art. True. But today's relationship between the church and Hollywood is a long way from that. Also, also true. true. Not as far as we used to be, but we've got a ways to go. I feel like Christians need to understand what their role can be as patrons of the arts. And he basically says that as ticket buyers, that is you being a patron of the arts. It's honestly super smart. It is super smart. Um, I have met someone that works for this company at yeah. a junket, and I, I did not know that this existed. The only reason I know is because I was uh, at a junket covering a movie, and I always talk to the people that are there, and one of the guys that was there was talking about that this is what he does, that mm -hmm. he, he helps market films to a Christian audience. Correct. Um, which and is they, fascinating. They not only help market films to a Christian audience, they also test screen films with Christian audiences. To get feedback. And then they do rewrites and reshoots so they don't offend christian audiences as well and this is not just movies that you might think are faith-based movies so a lot of people will hear this and they'll think about the company pure Flix, which did god is not dead for example what is that god is not dead is a movie that was made for 2.2 million dollars and made 64 million dollars at the box office five years ago what yes and i've never heard of it well my grandma's seen it five times and she would be happy to watch it with you uh, it is an this, incredibly successful this, Christian like, film. This disconnect it blows my mind. This is our everything that's happening in this country boiled down to one movie. It's like yeah. God is not dead. Uh, but they don't just do faith-based movies. So here are some other films that they've worked on that you've probably seen. Man of Steel, Enchanted, Hotel Transylvania, Cinderella Man, Signs, which makes a lot of sense. The Pursuit of Happiness, Elf, Lord of the Rings, Gravity, Le Miserables, Crazy Heart, Lone Survivor, The Conjuring. Which is super smart. The Conjuring yeah. specifically Oh, leans, my mom loves The it Conjuring. It leans as heavily as they can <laughs> into Christianity yeah. without making it too hardcore for a secular audience. And that movie was incredibly successful. It's great also. It's a great movie. So they are doing these targeted screenings. Mm -hmm. Basically what Grace Hill Media does is they say, we're going to send this movie to every Christian blogger that we know. And they're going to watch it and they're going to give you a good review to all of their audience. Which is huge. Which is huge, especially in the evangelical community. They also send the movie in advance to 50 congregations. Oh, my God. And they host private screenings led by the pastors of the congregation of the movie with so, the whole, all the families. This is brilliant. And also, I feel like if, if this is kind of happening at the same time that Evan Almighty is happening, it's happening at the uprising of social media as well. Correct. So this is 2007. Right. So Facebook so, is still just college people, but it's... Yeah, it's coming at the right time. YouTube exists, and Correct. we're only a couple years away from really the resurgence of uh, 
to a certain degree, I think maybe I'm totally wrong, but the resurgence of a very popularized form of Christianity, which yeah. I think has all the blog stuff was yeah. doing that. Yeah, it's time. making it more accessible. It's reaching a larger audience. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. <laughs> so they're doing all of this targeted marketing, trying to get the Christian audience to come out for this movie. And it's projected initially to have a $50 million opening, which actually is close to what Bruce Almighty did, mm-hmm. because Bruce Almighty would have done $68 million over three days because it was Memorial Day at 85. Uh, so it's released on June 22nd of 2006, and it flops. Mm. Original projections were $50 million. Studio adjusted that target down to $40 million, and it ended up bringing in $31 million on its first weekend. Now, because it's a family film, the head of distribution for Universal Pictures, Nikki Rocco, declares, we never expected it to be much higher. It's not really true. Yeah. Uh, it is not unusual for family films to open at a level like this and build. This film will have legs. The problem is I had no idea this was a family film. That's, I think, the big issue, yeah. is that coming off of Bruce Almighty, there is that disconnect. Yeah. Uh, this didn't really turn out to be true. The movie made $175 million, as we talked about. Now, it would be easy to say that the marketing strategy failed. But if you look at who saw this movie, it actually worked. Right. So its business was strongest in the South and the Midwest. Mm-hmm. That's unusual for a movie, mm-hmm. and especially for a comedy. Usually they do better on the coasts. It did better in the mountain regions as well, and it was softest in the east and in, on the east coast and in Canada. Because it marketed heavily to faith-based sectors, it didn't translate to multitudes of moviegoers, but exit polls showed that 40% of the audience considered themselves frequent attendees of religious services, which is surprisingly high. And the ratings were markedly higher amongst those frequent religious service attenders than non-frequent religious service attenders. Uh, so with that, what they basically said was if you didn't have that church going audience attending this movie, Mm -hmm. it would have literally been the biggest box office bomb in Hollywood history. They looked at this Christian audience. They saw how it was turning out for other movies. They said, this is an audience we can tap into, but then they spent $200 million on the movie. The movies that do incredibly well with this particular audience don't cost $200 million. So there just simply wasn't the audience of the right size to support this movie. Well, and they spent no money on making it a crossover hit. Exactly. The brutal truth of the movie is it looks great. It's the CGI is good. The animals are great. The movie's not funny. It's not. That's the biggest. I-, I mean, really, like that's just that's the biggest issue. It's just not. A, it's not a very funny movie. And as a result, you aren't going to get all of the people that are coming to Bruce Almighty because their friends have said this movie's so funny. You have to go see it. Um, I do also want to point out that the amount of money they spent on the soundtrack of this cannot have been small because yeah. there is a needle drop about two minutes in. I checked it. It's a, a Creedence Clearwater Revival mm-hmm. needle drop, obviously. Which song is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. What's that called? It's Have You Ever Seen the Ring? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that shows yeah. up real fast. They got ZZ Top in there. They, they got a Beatles song that's sung original not by song the Beatles. That's nominated for a Dove Award. Oh, what's that? A Dove is a gospel music award. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the movie comes and goes. Basically, no one sees it. 
and everybody moves on. Universal still had a profitable year. They had the breakup that year with Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn. That, that did really well. That movie is depressing. It's very dark. Um, uh, Steve Carell went on to do huge things with The Office. His career obviously stabilized. Um, John Goodman did incredible things. Always Ed Helms. <laughs> Ed Helms went on to great things. John Michael Riggins, Wanda Sykes did her stuff. Jonah Hill has been nominated for an Oscar now. Yeah. Um, but basically what's really interesting is the person who disappears is the director, Tom mm. Shadiak. And it's not for the reasons that you might think. So the typical explanation when you come off of box office bomb is that if you've done enough successful movies up until then... Yeah, you're okay. You get one. Right. And so you would expect that Tom Shadiak, who'd made $2 billion at the box office before... Right, would be fine. ...would come back in a couple of years and make something else. What's really interesting is that Tom Shadiak turned around and sold everything he owned, gave it all to charity... And moved into a trailer in Malibu. So he was involved in a bike accident in 2007. Oh, no. And he suffered a concussion. And he had had some head injuries earlier in his life. And he had a post-concussion syndrome where he was suffering basically prolonged symptoms. He was unable to process stimuli correctly. He ended up sleeping in his closet. He isolated himself. And he had already been feeling disconnected from Hollywood and the mm-hmm. lifestyle that he was living. This you is someone can tell in that clip. That yeah. We were this is someone to. who was worth $50 million. Yeah. Who owned a 17,000 square foot house in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. His movies had made billions of dollars at the box office. He was the king and he wasn't happy. He was lonely. His marriage had imploded. And when he was working on Evan Almighty with a crew of construction folks, largely, he kept thinking to himself, why do I have so much money? And these people don't. And to his credit, he made an incredible change in his life. He turned around and he sold his house. He sold his assets. Now, this trailer in Malibu is still expensive. I was going to say, trailers a, in Malibu are like $700,000. It's, 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 it's a million dollar Malibu in trailer. But it's not the $15 million yeah, house yeah. that he lived in. And he stepped away from Hollywood and tried to start getting some answers. Um So he started meeting with all of these spiritual leaders and guides. And he decided that he was going to make a documentary. And so in 2010, he released this documentary called I Am. Hmm. And it's about the question, what is wrong with the world and what, what can we do about it? Aww. And it's told through his perspective. And I watched a bunch of clips from it. And it's very earnest. Mm-hmm. It didn't get great reviews. But everybody that watched it was like, Tom Shadyac's really likable yeah. in the movie. It's a little all over the place. And he totally stepped away from the comedy game. He moved to Memphis eventually, and he part formed a partnership with St. Jude's Children Research Hospital there, mm-hmm. started a homeless shelter. He teaches at a historically black college. Uh, he uh, donated an incredible amount of money to a city in Colorado. I can't remember which one it yeah. is, um, to help them maintain like a natural history site that they had there. Um, he started another uh, homeless program in Virginia where he'd been living when he had the bicycle accident. He's also, I think, a UVA graduate. Yeah, he is. Um, And uh, UCLA film school, I believe. I don't care about that. I only care about UVA. And what's interesting is that, in a weird way, his life is the more interesting version of the message that the movie was trying to sell. The movie's about stepping away from the rat race getting perspective Mm -hmm. on what the important things are and focusing your attention and energy in the relationships and places that matter. Mm -hmm. 
And Tom Shadiak, it seems like, did that oh, after this movie in a, nice. a really sweet and interesting way that's completely unexpected. He's since made a return to filmmaking. He made a movie called Brian Banks, which is a true story about a uh, former football player who was wrongfully convicted of a violent crime. And it's about his fight for justice and innocence. It did decently well. Uh, it came out in 2018. Um, made it in and around Memphis, I believe. Um, he Memphis is great. By yeah, the, the comedy stuff that he was trying to get going wasn't getting going. He rediscovered his faith as he was like going through this process. And so now he's kind of breaking into a different mold and a part of his life. Um, it's just, I, I think it's really interesting when his life ends up becoming the more interesting version of yeah. the movie that he ended up making. Well, I'm glad something good came out of it. Well, more than one thing that's good came out of this movie. And so uh, we like to end uh, our show usually with what two sections now, uh, what we've learned mm-hmm. and what went right. And mm-hmm. I want to start with what went right, not on necessarily a creative perspective, but what this production did right in terms of its environmentalist angle. Mm-hmm. So like the movie has kind of this environmentalist angle that feels a little ahead of its time. The production decided that they were going to actually take a carbon neutral approach to the film. And movies are traditionally incredibly destructive yeah. to the environment. Um, and in, in a, an Apocalypse Now, they literally were just blowing jungles up in that in that movie, uh, and as well as killing each other. And basically. also hacking up an actual bull during that. Exactly. So, yeah. uh, and this movie's the opposite. So largely with the blessing and at the behest of Tom Shadyac, to his credit, they calculated their carbon footprint so all the costs of flying all of the animals to set etc and they decided that they would need to plant 2050 trees to offset that carbon footprint and so the production did that uh they were the first production of universals to zero out their carbon emissions tom shadiak personally bought every crew member a bicycle so they could ride their bikes to set 400 bicycles this guy's really nice he's great uh (laughs) The ark that they built was completely disassembled and every piece was donated to Habitat for Humanity. They melted down all the steel that they used. They sold it and they gave those donations to Habitat to Humanity. Mm -hmm. Uh, They made a campaign through this website called Get On Board leading up to the release of the film where people could donate to the movie. If they donated, they were included on the DVD, their name as a contributor. And that campaign resulted in another 15,000 trees being planted through donations to the conservation fund. Uh, So the movie, in terms of what went right, actually did this trailblazing campaign Mm -hmm. to have a positive impact on the environment and meet the message of the movie as they were making it. So that's my uh, what went right takeaways. Lizzie, what about your what went right takeaways? Um. As cheesy as it sounds, it it is nice that they tried to make sort of an earnestly kind movie, however much it may have sort of missed on other parts. It it does have a nice message. Um, That's about it outside Mm -hmm. of the touching on the animals and and all that um, and the water. Uh, I guess what went right is John Goodman as an evil congressman because that's something he should do more. Yeah. I love They John missed him Goodman. on House of Cards, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that was a real miss. Yeah. Well, he was in the Alpha House on Amazon at the same time. Um, <sighs> didn't go anywhere. Uh, <laughs> what did we learn watching this movie? For me, what went wrong is when you try to make a movie for everyone, you make a movie for no one. Yes. And that's a classic 
saying that's used all the time. But this is, I think, a perfect example of learning what that really means. I also think it's don't alienate the audience you've already built. I mean, this was such a departure from Bruce Almighty in so many ways. Mm -hmm. You, You can't just count... First of all, don't anticipate that people are stupid. And don't anticipate that people are just gonna show up because they liked the first movie with nothing bringing them to the second one. People are, in general, I like to think, not that dumb. Like, sell them something. Uh, Chris is shaking his head because I think he believes people are that dumb. I disagree. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We'll leave it at that. Remember, if you have any recommendations for movies that you would like us to Monday morning quarterback, please send them our way. Please help us. You can find our contact information through the podcast notes below. Chris's phone number is 20... <laughs> That's way too many correct digits in a row. <laughs> Bye. What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. Editing and music by David Bowman with cover art from Yutana Uos. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.